It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. By the time this podcast drops on Friday, we will be 10 days until Election Day. That's right. And early voting started last week. We've seen some numbers in comparison to 2018. Looks pretty on par. The day-by-day totals are a little bit higher than 2018, actually. We are hearing from both sides of the aisle that Democrats are not performing at that 2018 level. In fact, the numbers aren't looking good for that party. Republicans are optimistic, and I think Democrats are a little concerned. A little concerned would be an understatement, (laughs) yes. We got some polling this week that probably adds to that concern. There are quite a few polls that came out this week. We were looking forward to the Tuesday Civitas poll, and we watched the live thread of it, and Donald Bryson was going through the numbers. It looks like Ted Budd, at this time, has the race tied up. Tied up, as in Congressman Budd, is in a good position to win this U.S. Senate race. According to the Civitas poll, he is up four points outside the margin of error. Now, there are some other polling showing that the race is tight, but certainly if you were taking the polling that John Locke has done, and then you take the historical trends of the U.S. Senate race, especially in a midterm in which the Democrats are in power in the White House, we could be seeing a victorious bud on Tuesday, November 8th. Yeah, I really think Democrats missed their chance with just making their whole campaign, this bud's not for you, but (laughs) I digress. The Marist poll said that they were essentially tied Bud and Beasley. However, among definite voters, Bud still had a four-point lead, which is the same as the John Locke poll. We mentioned it last week that the Dobbs decision seemed to have peaked sometime in early fall, late summer maybe. Folks are coming back to the inflation problem. Their dissatisfaction with Democrats having control of the Congress and the White House, there just seems to be what we talked about in Political Science 101 when I was in college. This is a realigning midterm election. Pretty much every poll we saw this week did say on a generic ballot, Republicans are up somewhere between four and six points. That seemed to be fairly consistent throughout like four or five different polls. And you get into four or six points on that generic ballot. Historically, that means red wave. So we could be seeing a red wave election. Tidal wave, maybe. Maybe. Tsunami. We'll get into some of the specific races about the General Assembly in a minute. But we saw an ad this week. I mean, Sherry Beasley is not going away quietly. She is really throwing everything out there she can. Former President Obama endorsed Sherry Beasley. And this is significant because I think folks were talking about how, one, she has not gone to any events that Joe Biden is at. And two, that Obama hadn't come to the state to campaign for her. But he did produce an ad. So if you're keeping score at home, that means Obama, Beasley, Trump, Bud, two former presidents have both endorsed in that race. Additionally, that one congressional race, the Bo Hines-Wiley-Nickel race, which everyone has discussed, we've discussed on the podcast, that it is the most competitive race in North Carolina. 
there were finally some poll numbers on that because I'm not sure we had seen poll numbers. Yeah, we had not really. It has them almost even. It has Nickel at 44 and Heinz at 43. And then, interestingly enough, 13% of undecided voters. And these were voters in that district. I want to point out that we had heard some rumors this week from insiders, political operatives on both sides of the aisle, saying that they felt the National Democratic Party had pulled out of the Wiley-Nickel race because they are concerned about Don Davis in that first congressional district. In fact, I had some Republicans say that they were actually concerned that Sandy Smith could win this race because... She's not exactly uh, the poster child you want for the Republican Party, and they're afraid that could this be another situation where they have a Madison Cawthorn on their hands. One thing for sure, uh, Wiley Nickel is still up on TV, and whether he is getting Democratic money from D.C. or not remains to be seen, but the guy does have money. I think we're going to see this go all the way to November 8th. It is a race to watch at that congressional level, along with that Don Davis-Sandy Smith race. There's going to be a lot of races to watch, actually. And with that generic ballot being so high for Republicans, you know, we've been talking about this last few weeks. But there are some seats that you would traditionally think would be more Democratic seats that are going to be up for grad. And as things have shifted more towards Republicans in the last couple of weeks, there are more seats available to Republicans. Yeah. At the legislative level, we're starting to get some information from insiders. Uh, Let's just start with the Senate. Uh, We've been told that the Senate feels they have 28 seats locked down. So they need 30 in order to achieve a super majority. That has been true since the maps came out. Lisa Barnes, uh, Danny Britt, Tom McInnes, Buck Newton, by the way, that's the Toby Fitch seat. They're in lockdown. Now we had heard a rumor this week that Democrats were pulling out of Senate District 3. Now, that is the Bobby Hannig versus Valerie Jordan race. We've been talking about whether she lived in the district or not. And that rumor just started flying around that they've pulled out. They're putting resources into other races. I talked to some Democrats yesterday. They said that is not the case, that they see polling that shows that Valerie Jordan and Bobby Hannock are neck and neck. I go back to some Republicans like, hey, Democrats are saying they're not out. And they say, well, that makes sense because our polling shows that that is a very close race. Remains to be seen, of course. But everybody's heard the rumor. Everybody's heard the rumor. I'd like to know who started this rumor. Not us. Not us. We just hear the news and, you know, we report it here on the podcast. But we're going to put that on our fight card for November 8th. In fact, we're going to get that out next week. Races, you should be tracking those swing races. Here's where the battleground is. Bobby Hannig, Valerie Jordan, Senate District 7. This is the Michael Lee, Marsha Morgan race. Then here in Wake County, we've talked a lot about these two races. The Sydney Batch, Mark Cavallaro race is really tight, as well as the Mary Wills Bodie and E.C. Sykes race. Very close as we are nearing Election Day. So E.C. Sykes, he made the news last week that his residency in that district, that we're talking about northern Wake County, apparently he's been living in a camper somewhere uh, in the district. He has a home somewhere else. I was told both sides, 
this kind of caught everyone flat-footed. Republicans didn't know this was happening. Democrats said that they missed it as well. But then we hear from a candidate in the primary. He says, this is what I've been saying about this he guy. He raised that challenge in the primary. So no one should have been caught flat-footed. Yeah. This is a boondoggle on both sides. And uh, But we'll see if E.C. Sykes and how that Bodie race comes out. And finally, we're also watching the race in Cumberland County with Val Applewhite and former Senator Wesley Meredith. So while Republicans and Democrats don't agree on a lot, uh, they do agree on this, that Bobby Hannig and Valerie Jordan, the Michael Lee, Marsha Morgan— the Sydney Batch, Mark Cavallero, the Val Applewhite, Wesley Meredith race, and the Mary Wills Bodie, E.C. Sykes race, they all agree these are razor thin margins, and these will be the races you want to be tracking on election night. Now we will turn to the house. <laughs> yeah. yeah, got some news this week. We, again, talked to both sides. Republicans are feeling really great about Erin Perre here in Wake County. She's the incumbent. Some of the races we've covered before are still the races that are looking to flip Republican. And I don't think we'd mentioned Howard Hunter and Garland Pierce before, but those two are two new names that appear to be trending Republican, as well as the ones that we mentioned a few weeks back, and that's James Galliard, Linda Cooper-Suggs, Terry Garrison. Those are all ones that could go either way. There are some Democratic races that we think you should be looking at. These are going to be the tight races, and both parties agree on this. Those are incumbents that are currently serving. And there are also districts that we've watched in the past. So they're kind of those districts you look at every year. And that is Ricky Hurtado in Alamance County. And he is in a rematch with Stephen Ross, who is a former legislator. We're also looking at the district in Pitt County where Representative Brian Farkas is. He won a hard fought election last go around and appears that that will be a tough one again. And then here in Wake County in the Wake Forest area, Representative Terrence Everett looks to be in a tough spot. Democrats seem to be the party that are on the ropes more than the Republican Party. The threshold for getting a supermajority in the House is 72. They're currently at 69. So, you know, you take this with what the Senate is looking at, their threshold is 30. And then you look at the House where their threshold is 72. It does look as if Republicans are in a better position to get super majorities, especially when you combine all of this information with the polling that we talked about earlier in the podcast. Now we will turn to all of the listeners' favorite segment. <laughs> unsubstantiated rumors we heard from y'all that you were sad that we didn't have it last week so we are bringing you what the people want this week right. we even had one senator call us up and say look just make something up <laughs> <laughs> and we were like buddy that's what we do every day all right so here's the unsubstantiated rumor we're hearing coming out of congressional district 13 this is wiley nickel versus bo hines so the rumor is that if Wiley Nickel loses that seat, he will be running for lieutenant governor. Now, you and I have discussed this 
it really feels like a lot of people want to be lieutenant governor. Yeah, it's kind of like the lieutenant governor's race becomes the island of misfit toys <laughs> in politics. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we put this in the unsubstantiated rumor column because it seems to be more substantiated every single day. But our good friend Tom Murray, my former representative, he launched a website this week that popped up on social media. The website is jointom.com. It doesn't tell you what he's running for, but it does have the entire state of North Carolina on it, which would indicate that it's a statewide office and not a district. He's running for something. We had mentioned him for attorney general. Mm -hmm. He's a prosecutor up in Franklin County, former representative, pharmacist, veteran. You could find all of the information you need to know about Tom Murray on this website, jointom.com. I think that Tom is going to announce Attorney General and maybe a couple weeks after the election. I predict he'll be the first one out of the gate. So looking at you, Senator Danny Britt, what are you going to do? We have to assume that Jim O'Neill in Forsyth County is looking at the Attorney General's race. We know on the Democratic side, we've got, what, Jeff Jackson. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. Early voting is open until Saturday, November the 5th. We hope you vote. This week, we were really excited to have Demi Dowdy, the communications director for Speaker Tim Moore, and hearing about her path in working for think tanks and other organizations and coming to the General Assembly was inspiring. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Demi Dowdy, Communications Director for Speaker Tim Moore. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. To start us off, tell us about what your everyday job looks like. What does your day-to-day working for the speaker look like? The intensity of my day depends mostly on whether my boss is going to be in town or not. These days, and I guess every day, he's crossing the state, seeing constituents back in his district, helping right now, helping other colleagues get elected. And so... Um, It can be very different from day to day. I typically don't know what to expect, even the evening before when I try to plan my day. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's a huge marker of this uh, industry where we work, that it's just always different. And you can't really plan ahead, which is a huge challenge for what we do. And what about when they're in session? What does your day look like? Sure. So whenever they're in session, I'm there with the speaker when uh, there are votes happening and we're his staffer on the floor. My role really comes into play after session reps and the press come into onto the floor and they want to ask the speaker a bunch of questions. And uh, I'm there to field those kind of, tell them to back off if they're getting too intense, not really. <laughs> and uh, just make sure that he also knows beforehand anything that I need to bring him up to speed on that he may have missed and that's very infrequent. <laughs> mm-hmm. The speaker is an extrovert 
He loves to talk to folks. He loves mixing it up. But from your perspective, it must be nerve wracking to see him in a gaggle of reporters and they're coming at him at all directions. So for somebody in my role, it always is nerve wracking, no matter who your boss is. (laughs) And I think as a communications person, you always have your messaging points in your head and you know what you want them to say. Typically, your boss won't say everything that you think they should say, or they'll say a lot of things that you wish they hadn't said. I happen to work for somebody who's very well-spoken and very good on his feet. And he's also very friendly and congenial and sincere in that way. He's not only good at remembering the talking points or remembering the messaging points that I want him to say, but he just sincerely converses well with the press and gets along with the press. And and I never really have to be any kind of buffer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never feel the kind of panic I would feel if somebody said something they shouldn't or didn't say something they should. He's really good on his feet and that's why he's Tim Moore. He's good at what he does. So you've got yeah. 69 Republicans in your mm-hmm. caucus. What is your role with them? Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of differing opinions and philosophies and ideologies in our caucus. Just because they're all Republicans doesn't mean they all think exactly the same. It doesn't mean they say things exactly the same. There's pros and cons of that, and they each have different districts that they're representing, different communities of people that they have to represent, too. And so those are the nuances within the caucus that I certainly can't control, and I don't attempt to. Um, So I work directly for Speaker Moore in our office. In that role, I'm happy to come alongside any office that would like help with messaging or press releases or, you know, writing things, drafting things of that nature. And we like to all be on the same page in our bigger messaging issues. So in the caucus, it's something that I'll share, you know, with other members, what our office is going to start saying or how we're going to approach an issue. And that informs their offices and they can take it or leave it. Right. There's this misconception out there that all 170 members at the General Assembly have a press secretary, and that is not the case. It's basically you and Lauren are the press people. You're not wrong, yes. So it's me and Lauren, and then uh, Representative Bell does have a comms person. That's right. Jimmy Milstead, he listens to the podcast. Jimmy's fantastic. And I work very closely with Jimmy, and so we kind of help come alongside all the LAs in our caucus for messaging and planning purposes. But it's just us in mm-hmm. the house side. And it's Lauren and she has a colleague now over there who works with her. And that's pretty much it. Do the Democrats have press staff? They do. There's a couple of comms people on the Democrats. I don't, I don't know how many. Right. Yeah. Speaking of messaging mm-hmm. and press releases, how do you decide what bills passed that are going to make your press releases or what things you're going to note to the public? You know, a huge part of my job, because it's 24-7, is keeping up with what people are saying in the news, what the reporters are talking about, what they want to know. And building those relationships is very, very important in my job. I like to think that I have a good relationship with most of of them. And so if they're texting me or emailing me and asking me that about a certain piece of legislation, if it's going to be up for a vote, then I know that that's something that they're going to want to write about. So that is on our radar as more of a hot issue. Those things kind of bubble up to the surface too anyway. Those Mm -hmm. things that, you know, are really hot and really newsworthy are things that we're going to jump on and say, you know, we can't can't not respond to this or we can't not comment on this. And we tend to think of the media and politicians as being somewhat confrontational, right? Sure. They, they want the dirt. 
But you also need the media to cover the Speaker and the House and what's going on at the General Assembly. I always feel like a communications director is stuck in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. How do you balance that out? I mean, it's almost like being a child of two divorced parents. You you try to keep (laughs) peace and you try to like get them to talk to each other. And it's more of a, I mean, you make a great point. So there are times when I'm advocating for the for the press to have time with my boss. And there's okay. time where I'm advocating for my boss to not have to say anything to them. So, you right. know, it's, but whatever I feel is in the best interest of my boss at the end of the day, it's his decision, but I can come from those two different perspectives based on what I think would be most helpful for him. And then at the end of the day, he makes that call. Speaking of the different press folks, how do you communicate with Senator Berger's staff and how do you decide when you're going to be on the same messaging, particularly Lauren, Mm -hmm. or you're going to release your own message? It's a great question. It's very inside baseball. <laughs> um, this is an inside so baseball th- podcast. It is. That's, I've learned so much from this podcast. So Lauren and I have a great relationship. All right. So Lauren Horsch, she is the communications director for Senator Phil Berger. She's been so helpful, especially when I first started, to understand the perspective of a reporter working at the General Assembly because she was one. And for her to be working for Senator Berger in the role she's currently in, I think really benefits him, but it's benefited me as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) in my learning curve being at the General Assembly. She and I have formed such a a good relationship that even when our two chambers are at odds, I don't think that's any secret, that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. She and I have somehow been able to still work together very, very well. And I think part of that, and we were just talking about that a little bit, I think part of that is because as comms people, our personal feelings and our personal ideology is separate from the messaging that we put forward. Anything I say is going to reflect upon my boss. It's going to be seen as something that my boss said, hopefully outside of this podcast, Mm because it's about me. (laughs) But um, (laughs) Lauren, in the same way, speaks on behalf of Senator Berger. And so there's an understanding, I think, with she and I that when we disagree, when we're putting out messages that are a little different from what the other chamber wants to put out, that we're not at odds because deep down under the surface, it's it's messaging. And then there's me and Lauren Mm -hmm. and our friendship. And so I think we have a great working relationship for that reason. Yeah, you can tell. Tell us about your journey in communications. How did you get here to the General Assembly? Mm -hmm. Well, I was kind of thinking about it on the drive here. I was like, what's the first thing that kind of piqued my interest? And I think my mom's always been an activist. So that kind of started the spark. And because she has always been interested in politics somewhat, I I started being interested in myself. And I think in fourth grade, I volunteered on the Bob Dole campaign. Did you really? (laughs) I did. Was that the 88 election? Gosh, no, I was born in 85. Oh, no, that was 90. (laughs) So, yeah, he he did run in the primary in 88, but 96. Yes, it was 96. Okay, yeah. You're not that old. No, but I am old. But a few (laughs) years later, I think what really inspired me, and I actually listened to it on the way here because I was like, I missed that speech was Condoleezza Rice in the 2000 convention. Yeah. I saw a minority female mm-hmm. who was very feminine, elegant, beautiful, well-spoken, but a strong, strong woman. And she stood there as a leader in the party that I loved. You mm-hmm. know, I was, I was young. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't know really my politics. But I loved the Republican Party. Uh, that's the family I grew up in. And so admired Condoleezza Rice. And then I started pursuing conferences and things where I would spend summers in D.C., I did Young America's Foundation and a couple other 
conferences of that nature that just got me really interested in policy. And from there, I went to school for political communications, actually. Ended up getting an internship in Washington, D.C. for a grassroots organization. And from there, I just kind of stayed in the nonprofit world. If you don't mind, can you dig a little deeper for us, Denny, on Condoleezza Rice, a black woman? Why was that so important? Um, So I'm half Cuban. My father literally swam over from Cuba to Miami in the 80s. Um, He was someone who was a political prisoner in Mm. Cuba uh, during the rise of Castro. And um, I still have family over there. I have family over here. Unfortunately, been pretty disconnected from that side of my family. But grew up originally in Florida as a young brown girl in a white family who didn't see a lot of people who looked like me, especially in Republican politics. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you know, is the most important thing, but it was a very important thing for me as somebody who is aspiring to be Peggy Noonan or to be Condoleezza Rice or to be a woman in politics who had a strong voice and to see that it wasn't just a bunch of white men. It was some beautiful, like diverse women who had strong voices and more so over the last several years too. It's been encouraging. It's getting better. It is. I think so. I know you don't work on the political side, right, right. But, but we're poised to see a lot more different faces. Maybe I'm excited in your about that. Yeah, it's Absolutely. good. I think it's good for both parties to have a bigger tent. Agreed. Speaking of your nonprofit experience, can you mm-hmm. kind of take us through your career to where you are now? So in D.C., I kind of jumped around some nonprofits. I did lobbying on Capitol Hill during like the Tea Party days with Concerned Women for America. I also worked for a homeschool organization, Homeschool Legal Defense. And I've done some of my own writing here and there. And then when I came to, I married my husband in D.C. And then we both came to North Carolina because we're both from the South. I said, let's get out of here. And actually just this is crazy. I called the Civitas Institute the day after we moved here. And I was like, hey, I love you guys. Are you hiring? (laughs) And Brian was like, Brian Balfour over there was like, oh, that's weird. We actually are looking for a communications person. Wow. And we'd never met. I mean, it was a pure cold call. And so he said, let's meet. And then they hired me. And so I don't know how that worked, but Uh it did. And so I wanted to work there. And I ended up there for about two years and took some time off and then came back here. That had to have been an intense job. Civitas, which is now merged with John Locke, Mm -hmm. puts out so much communications. Definitely. (laughs) And it's very heady, right? And so that's one of the huge differences from where we are. You know, I kind of like whatever, again, bubbles up to the top is like that messaging in our world here in politics and in government is very different uh, because they do more of a deep dive into some of these policies and analytics. And I learned so much there, so mm-hmm. much there. And it was fascinating. But the research they do there and, and they do there as Locke now is just phenomenal. I think of the think tanks are putting out communications in prose. Inside the General Assembly, it's more poetry, isn't it? It's really well said. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> but did you just call me a poet? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're going to title this Poet Demi Doughty Comes yes. on the Podcast. I love it. I'm a poet. <laughs> when did you... Did you come into the speaker's office? What year? Uh, it was May of 21. Okay. okay. So tell us about your decision to come inside the government. That had to be sure. a huge transition. It was a massive transition. When I came into the speaker's office to meet him, before they decided to hire me, I said, this is my disclaimer. I've worked in grassroots and nonprofits. I This is going to be a huge learning curve for me. And it certainly has been, but the pace is so fast that you have to learn very quickly. And I have learned so much so quickly. So uh, it was a huge adjustment. 
I think in grassroots and nonprofit world, you know, we were talking about the press a little bit earlier, and I think there's such a different mentality, and maybe it was just the period of time I worked in grassroots and nonprofits as well, but that animosity towards the press is something that was so strong in that world, I think, because you're always on guard and that was kind of the mentality that I had when I first started in grassroots and, and nonprofit, especially because there's so much fundraising involved in that world. You know, there's so much alarmism and, you know, clickable headlines and clickable emails to fundraise. There's just a lot more strong messaging than what I'm doing now, more threading the needle. And we need to work across the aisles and we need to work with the press. And I want to work with the press and have gained such a better respect mm-hmm. for the press and what they do. And I think that's a huge difference. One of the members of the press is the Carolina Journal, which is a that's product right. of John Locke and Civitas. People think, well, that's a conservative newspaper. There's still confrontation, sure. right? They don't agree with the speaker on that's some right. policy issues. I like to think that I've also built bridges. Yeah. I make them like you know, or think differently about the things that I'm messaging that if it was a role reversal, I would also be skeptical of. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, does. you know, I think that my experience and kind of understanding that world maybe is helpful in that way, yeah. that I can understand where they're coming from and understand our office and where my boss is coming from and kind of help forge some new relationships in that way. Yeah. What would you say is your favorite part of your job? Uh, truly, and, and I think a lot of my colleagues in my office are going to laugh, and you're probably going to laugh too. <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen as much of North Carolina as I have in the last two years. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, some days doing that can be very exhausting. But truly, truly, being able to see not just my boss's district and him interacting with his constituents, but to see all of North Carolina from the coast to the mountains, north and south is, you know, there's just areas of the state I've never seen before and I have fallen in love with. And those are opportunities I never would have had, especially not in the short time period. I've seen so much, you know, a lot of the relationships I've built as well are invaluable and I think will last long beyond the time I'm in the General Assembly. I follow your boss, Speaker Moore, on (laughs) social media. He is everywhere, it seems, just in a matter of hours. I'll see him. You know, he's in Rocky Mound. Then he's in Western North Carolina. I mean, for a staffer, and it sounds like you love it, but it must be hard to keep up with this man. That is putting it mildly. (laughs) Yeah, we can't keep up with him. Yeah. (laughs) And try very hard. I think that he has more energy than all of us put together, and it serves him well. Because he's doing a great job for the party and for the people running around this time. You said that you and your husband got married in D.C. Did you all meet in D.C.? How did you meet your husband? He's going to laugh that I told this story. So we (laughs) met um, through mutual friends. Everybody went to see, what was the movie? Inception. Mm -hmm. Met at the movie theater. He'd never met me before. He spotted me across the room and literally followed me into the theater (laughs) (laughs) and kept trying to talk to me and kept trying to get his buddy to help him talk to me and then literally chased me down the escalator and asked to walk me to my car afterwards it was very cute he was working as a defense contractor in dc at the time and i was working in the nonprofit world and so we both had very busy dc jobs but we were missing the south and so that's why we came back here eventually why north carolina in the south I guess selfishly, I grew up here. So I was born in Florida, but when I was about 11 or 12, my family was like, oh, we need a change of seasons and moved us up here. So I spent some time there as a kid and here in high school. And then when I went to DC, my husband's from Missouri. 
And so we're both from the South and we're like, okay, where can we both do what we love to do in our careers and still be in the South? Probably not Haytime, Missouri, which is where he's from. (laughs) So we chose Raleigh. Is he political? He's not very. He works at Bragg as a defense contractor. And so the military world is pretty apolitical. Right. Um, But he still engages in my political conversations that never end when I get home from work. So (laughs) he's sweet like that. Very supportive. (laughs) He sounds that way. And I think I've seen that since you've traveled the state so much with the speaker, it feels like you and your husband travel a lot Mm -hmm. across North Carolina. Where are some of your favorite places to go? One trip I made this year that has really made me fall in love with that area is to Beaufort. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. I think we talked about that, too, before I went, Brian. And it has, I mean, it just, I fell in love with it. It felt like coastal, like, Maine or something. Mm -hmm. And and that's just not an area we'd ever seen. So we have plans to go back there. Plans to go back to Pinehurst. My husband's gotten into golf recently. Mm -hmm. But we try to go to the mountains every year around this time. We're trying to plan a last-minute trip, but there's nothing left. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's like peak season right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we love mountains and beach just like anybody else. So I imagine now the pace is slower, but we're going to start session in January. I imagine you're not traveling as much. You're at the General Assembly every day. Uh, when we're back in session. Yeah. Correct. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I just want to make something very clear. <laughs> there is a lot going on right now. I'm crazy yeah. busy. And I'm, yeah. I don't mean, I'm not trying to correct you or anything, but yeah. everybody actually thinks when we're not in session, like it's super chill. I'll say that the speaker's office and Senator Berger's office are just hard at it every day still. I mean, we may not be in session, but we've got court cases going on. We've got Things going on in the news every day. The horrible tragedy in Raleigh last week. Mm-hmm. People are looking to legislators to respond to that. And those things, they just seem to pop up every day. It's so crazy how busy we are more not in session. Or maybe the press just finds things to write about to <laughs> make me busy. <laughs> but when we're back in session, it's going to be pretty yeah. nuts. And we're going to be getting a lot done. There's going to be a different energy in the building. And we're all really looking forward to that. We asked Neil this, so I told you we were going to ask you as well. What do you think is misunderstood about the speaker? I think probably the most misunderstood is his ability to work across the aisles and across parties. I've seen him stand very strong and firm in what he believes, but the realities of the world we work in require us to work with people across the aisles and people who think differently. Nobody's going to be happy at the end of the day when you have policy differences and then you come up with a bill that has to become law. I think the speaker does that very, very well. It's not uncommon to see Democrats waiting outside of the speaker's office to talk to him about an issue. Yes. And you know that a negotiation is ongoing. Yes. It kind of makes me disappointed when I see some papers or something something online will say, you know, look at the speaker hanging out with Horry Cooper at the basketball game or look at mm-hmm. the speaker having coffee with so-and-so. That's, that's a good, positive thing. And I wish that more people saw it that way. Unfortunately, we live in a really divisive time. I'm hopeful. I have optimism that we're evolving from an era where we were so divisive to maybe having a little bit more working together and being gracious with each other. People don't know this about the speaker, but he has you know, deep abiding friendships with some Democrats that he thinks a lot of personally. Of course. Yeah. And I think it for anyone else on the extreme side of things to villainize people who disagree with you to the point where you don't have any relationships with those people right. is going to be a challenge for you if you want to work in politics or accomplish anything. What's it like being in the room where it happens? Oof. 
It's pretty cool. And I'll say that it's it's great to be in the room. Sometimes you get those chills mm-hmm. when something is happening that you know that's going to help a bunch of people in North Carolina. Nine days out of 10, you don't have those moments, mm-hmm. but you work for those moments. That's a huge motivator. And so um, sometimes being in the room where it happens is the night they come up with a budget deal yeah, and everybody's cheering and high-fiving in the speaker's office and we made a deal and I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> We got to put a statement out. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, those are very exciting moments. But there's also moments, and I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but there's a moment like yesterday where there's a group of moms outside of the General Assembly building holding up photos of their sons who had been murdered in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And a couple of our staff ran into them in the front of the building and they said, you know, what are you doing out here? You know, are you looking to speak to somebody in particular? And they told them a little bit of their story and the injustice they've experienced. And six of these moms came up to the speaker's office. We asked them to come sit down and chat with us, which we wouldn't have been able to do if we were in session. So we sat down with them for probably about an hour, just listening to their stories, listening to the bureaucracy about the bureaucracy that had kept them from seeing justice for their sons. And without going into too much detail, it was just a lovely moment to be able to hear them. They felt heard. They were in tears when they left saying that this was the first time anybody sat down and listened to their stories. And all of us were in tears. And now we're in touch with them and we want to help them in any way we can, you know, and see some kind of justice. Whatever (laughs) comes out of that, it was a moment where we were able to connect with people very directly, not in the abstract creating policy. We were face to face with people that we could potentially directly help. And if nothing else, we sat and listened to them. And I'm getting chills right now. Mm. That that was the, they told us that was the first time somebody sat and listened Mm. to them in their grief. I think that was powerful for them, but it was just as powerful for me Mm. because I held one of these moms and cried with her and felt very passionate about what she came there passionate about. And transferring that and hearing those stories and that being a motivator motivator for us is really, really powerful. And it gets us through the days that are mundane and the days where we don't see that kind of rewarding moment. So you know this question is coming, but <laughs> you spoke earlier about how divisive politics is right now. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing, what would that be? I have a really obvious answer. And I think my husband will make fun of me. <laughs> I do want to see more strong women in the Republican Party. Mm. And we've got them coming. Mm. I mean, we've got a lot of good candidates right now running. I love Ashley Seschel, a couple other women who are running. Erin Perry is a great person in the legislature who I've admired for a long time ever since I've worked there and worked with her pretty closely. I want to see more of that. And I want to see more diversity in the party as well. But not without, you know, sticking to our values. And, And I think that you can have both. And I think there's a misconception that diversity is this obscure thing that removes the values of the Republican Party, that wanting to welcome more women into leadership roles in the Republican Party is just a reaction to feminism, liberal progressive feminism. And that's not my brand of feminism, even though I call myself a feminist. But I don't think that should make us averse to welcoming more women into the party in strong roles. Because people like me, as a young girl, will see that and want to be like that. 
that's something that I aspire to. And I think the future of the party kind of depends on a diversity of thought and a diversity of experience and background. And that really comes with having more women and diversity in the party. Your boss seems committed to it. He has a very diverse staff, senior staff. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Over time, it's going to get even better, I assume. Of course. And I think it's more broad, even more broadly, just society. We've come very far, but we have a long way to go. You know, I don't think feminism or diversity is the end all be all. We have to stick to our principles all along the way. But I think that they're not mutually exclusive. Well, Demi Dowdy, we appreciate everything you do for Speaker Moore, everything you do for the General Assembly and the entire state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you both. Appreciate it. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. This podcast focuses a lot of attention on legislators. We want to know who they are, what makes them tick, get to know them so that we could understand their politics. But, you know, we've said it before, Sky, getting to know the staff, the folks that are in the room, when and where it happens is just as important. If you're down at the General Assembly doing work, knowing Demi, knowing about her, I think really enhances your work. Demi, thank you for being on the podcast this week. That was a fantastic conversation. Tweet Tweet of of the the week. week. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Colin Campbell. He's at Raleigh Reporter, and it says, quote, I was undecided slash unenthusiastic about the NC Sin race, but then Ted Cruz, Dave Matthews came to town, and now I'm pumped. End quote. And then it says, a non-existent NC poll likely voter. <laughs> Tongue in cheek. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously this week, both of them came to town on Tuesday. Yeah. We've seen a lot of celebrities through the years come in as surrogates for campaigns. I remember a few years ago, John Bon Jovi came in for John Kerry and John Edwards. Gosh, I say a few years ago. That's 2004. Yeah. Didn't Beyonce come in 2016? Mm-hmm. Like the election night or something? Yeah. Back in 2008, James Taylor came for President Obama. It always seems kind of weird when celebrities are used this way. I have no problem with celebrities, you know, having political views, even expressing... That's nice of you. (laughs) They can have opinions too. They can, but I just don't really care, you know? Yeah. So if you go to one of these, is it just a free concert? Yeah. It's open. It's just... Usually general admission, you walk in and you don't have to pay anything. You know, I was recording yesterday at Capitol Tonight and Alan Kispaugh, who's a producer over there. Yeah, he was heading out to the Dave Matthews concert. I don't think he cared one way or another about Sherry Beasley. He wanted to see Dave Matthews. And apparently they they don't do, I was talking to Alan about this yesterday. They don't do a full concert. You might get eight to 12 songs. Well, yeah. Yeah. You're not going to do a three-hour concert. That would be crazy. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess the big thing is why do we care? I mean, Clint Eastwood speaking at the RNC convention a few years ago, that was such a mess where he's talking to the empty chair. And, you know, Michael Jordan got in some trouble back in 1990. Uh, That was the year you were born, right? Yeah. Uh, You don't remember. Good for you for knowing that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. 
It was the Jesse Helms Harvey Gantt race, and folks were trying to get him to make an endorsement, and he did not. He said that Republicans buy Nike shoes too, and he didn't want to alienate you know, consumers. There is an exception. Who? We're going back to 2000. Mike Easley was in a very hot race with, I believe, Richard Vinroot. But Andy Griffith cut an ad for Mike Easley. He was kind of down in the polls. And a lot of folks did credit Andy Griffith that year for the endorsement. In fact, it was called the Mayberry Miracle. I wonder if anyone went to that concert this week. Undecided. Yeah, undecided. And they hear, you know, Dave Matthews sing a song. By the way, he doesn't even have his band there. So I assume it's just Dave Matthews by himself. And you go, yeah, I think I'm going to vote for Sherry Beasley on November 8th. I mean, maybe if you're like, I I did get a free concert out of this. Yeah. I don't know. Seems like I mean, there has to be some sort of data on this or they wouldn't keep doing it, right? I guess it gets young voters, although... I don't think young voters are big Dave Matthews guys. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here's the big question. What concert would you like to see... For free? For free, come to North Carolina. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. I mean, that's an expensive concert to start with. Uh Her tickets are expensive. Best concert I think I've ever attended was Taylor Swift's Red concert at the PNC Arena. Took my daughter, son, Julie went as well. We had a great time. I kind of went in a little bit skeptical because I've been to some teeny bopper kind of concerts. I got drugged. She's not a teeny bopper. But I was thinking at that time, you know, my daughter's really into T-Swift and I'm thinking, you know, that's what it's going to be. I was blown away. So I did go to... I hate to say this, but I went to a New Kids on the Block concert when I was in high school because all my friends wanted to go, and I was embarrassed. I felt like I was there with a bunch of eight-year-olds, and that's what I thought was going to happen at the (laughs) PNC Arena. But it was like people of all ages. People of all ages, and Taylor Swift just puts on not only a great concert singing-wise, the musicians are excellent, but you feel... Like you are in a true performance. Yeah, I mean, I'm a seasoned Taylor Swift concert goer. Mm -hmm. How old was Isabel then? Probably 12 years old, 11 or 12. And she's still obsessed with Taylor Swift now. Yeah, you guys have been exchanging messages about the album that dropped last week. I listened to it. I have some favorite songs. A new video came out this week. So we got two in the can now. She's going to be legendary before it's all said and done. She is legendary. I'm telling you. It already broke all the records within like 24 hours. Her staying power. I think she is going to be a national treasure up there with just the best of the best before it's all said and done. Do you care what celebrities, those that you really think a lot of, does it have an effect on your opinion one way or another? I mean, I think a lot of Taylor Swift's music, but I don't really care about her political opinion. I also don't think that like these people that you hold that you you know you think are the greatest person ever are actually the greatest person ever. I I try not to fall in love with anyone like that. I have some friends, both sides, that will dismiss celebrities who weigh in on politics. That's just more about. The whole point of this podcast, isn't it? (laughs) That we're sort of in our tribes and anybody that disagrees with us is bad. And you and I were talking about that this week. I love them all. 
If you're a good performer, you're a good performer. My wife, she doesn't like Tom Cruise. She won't watch the Top Gun sequel. Now, he doesn't really get involved in politics. He just has some weird views about... Scientology. Scientology and whether you should take uh, antidepressants or not. Now, I find that to be kooky. But, I mean, you got to give it to the guy. The guy makes great movies. He's a great performer. And that's, you know, come on. Maybe he's not on antidepressants, but, you know... Really good Top Gun movie. You know, who should be on some medicine. Kanye West. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's who we should bring to North Carolina. Well, that would be wild. Yeah. Kanye West. That guy, he's lost sponsorships this week. Adidas dropped him. I mean, you got to drop him. The Gap got rid of all his clothes. I mean, Kanye. I used to love Kanye, too. You did? Yeah, I liked um, American Girl. I liked the uh, Longer, Faster, whatever that song is. <laughs> you don't even know the song the one, names. The one about... Uh, the one Stronger. Ab- it was called Stronger. Stronger, yeah. I like that. What was the one about you'll be paying child support? Uh, She's got you... You'll be... Gold Digger. Gold Digger. I love Gold Digger. <laughs> Man, loved it all. It was good stuff. And then he went cuckoo. Yeah. Nuts. I wonder who he would endorse. Most people don't deserve to be canceled, but like, let's let's be done with Kanye at this point. I sympathize for the guy because he obviously is not well. He just can't keep doubling down like that. It's definitely not an excuse for hate speech. Yeah, it's not. Well, that was uplifting, so... <laughs> The election is less than two weeks away, and we will keep you updated next week on what's happening. And then the week after the election, we will break down the news. But until then, when you're out at the polls, when you're talking to your friends about the election, please remember to do politics better.